0: You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Winebanks and Victor Xi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year. I'm also the co-host of this podcast. Um, Jill, do you want to brief, uh, briefly introduce yourself to our audience listening as well as maybe explain a couple of your uh, pins today?
1: Oh, okay, well, my pins are very special today because uh, for those of you who know, I have a hashtag, Jill's Pins. Today, I'm actually wearing a necklace, which is a descent collar. Mm-hmm. Um, I am also wearing a pin that says, talk the Ruth. And that's because I believe that's one of the things that Justice Ginsburg stood for is the truth and facts. Uh, and we're honored to be talking about her tonight uh, and to be honoring her legacy. Um, I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I am the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate prosecution of Richard Nixon's top aides. Um, I also was general counsel of the US Army and a partner in a law firm and a corporate officer at Motorola and Maytag. And I'm very proud to be the co-host with Victor of this wonderful podcast, which we hope will engage everyone in the discussion and in voting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts to to support future episodes. Um, Today, we are joined by Melissa Murray, um, an NYU Law School professor, co-host of the Strict Scrutiny Podcast. Um, We had Professor Leah Lippman, who is also one of the co-hosts of the Strict Scrutiny Podcast on um, a little while back to discuss the Supreme Court uh, term ending and um, helping us debrief that. And she is also a frequent guest on MSNBC. Um, Today, unfortunately, we are discussing a topic that neither Jill nor myself um, or really anyone wanted to talk about, and that is the passing of Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her legacy and what her death means to the Senate, the future of the Supreme Court and democracy. So first, um, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me
0: course. Okay, so let's start with kind of the overarching uh, legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what her being a justice on the court meant for our legal system and nation. So for a lot of young people, um, we've never lived in a time when um, there wasn't any female justice on the highest court of our land, but of course, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman justice, followed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then throughout RBG's time um, on the court, we've seen her evolved to become one of the, you know, if not the most uh, beloved, famous, and influential justices to ever live, um, maybe, uh, you know, the only one with a documentary and a biopic about them. So, um, as we honor um, her legacy today on intergenerational politics, um, what do you think she'll be known for as future generations read about her in the history books?
2: Well, I think her legacy exceeds just her tenure on the Supreme Court. Um, she became a justice in 1993, she spent a long time on the court, but she actually had a quite storied career as a law professor and a litigator even before she joined the bench. So if just to backtrack, um, you know, she was one of the few women in her class at Harvard Law School, there were nine women over 354 men. I mean, it was a a huge class with just these nine women and she was among them. And even among that small class of nine, she was distinctive because she was already married. Her husband was a year ahead of her at Harvard Law School and they had a daughter, Jane. And so she was going to school, helping her husband in the evening, raising her child with her husband. Um, And then in her second year, her husband was diagnosed with cancer And she then pivoted to not only continuing her studies, but also dealing with his studies. I'm organizing his friends to get notes to him. I'm studying for him, typing up his notes, typing up her notes. She said she existed on two hours of sleep a night. And, And I think you can just get a glimpse of like this incredible and indefatigable work ethic that really drove her. And you saw that as she consistently faced barriers in her career. Mm -hmm. She graduated at the top of her class. Um, She didn't graduate from Harvard. Her husband got a job in New York City and Harvard wouldn't let her live in New York and still attend classes in Cambridge. So she transferred to Columbia Law School. She had been on the Harvard Law Review. She transferred to the Columbia Law Review and she graduated tied for first in her class at Columbia but she couldn't find a job. And when I tell my female law students this, you know, they're astonished. Like the idea of the person who's first in the class not being able to get a job just is unfathomable. Um, She was initially sort of surfaced to Justice Felix Frankfurter as a potential clerk. And although she had these sterling credentials, Frankfurter declined to interview her. And then a law professor, Gerald Gunther, Um, offered her as a potential clerk to Edmund Palmieri, who is a judge on the Southern District of New York. And Palmieri balked at first, worried that her responsibilities to her family might be prioritized ahead of the work she had to do for him. And Gerald Gunther um, sort of laid down the gauntlet and said, if you don't take her, I will never send another clerk to you again. And um, he also promised that were she to not work out, he also had another clerk in reserve for his pretty low stakes for Judge Palmieri, but he wound up taking her and that was her first job in the law. Um, When she finished her clerkship, again, she couldn't find legal employment. So she wound up taking this stint in Sweden studying comparative um, civil procedure, Swedish civil procedure. She became fluent in Swedish. Um, She became fluent in their legal system. And she also became exposed to the ideas of gender equality that were really circulating in Sweden at the time. And it was a very different kind of understanding of gender. Sweden had taken some steps in previous years to eliminate discrimination against women, but they saw that it really didn't do anything if men continued to do the same kinds of things that they had always done within the family. So the Swedish government actually began thinking about how to disrupt the traditional gender roles that had both shackled women but also kept men in the same position. And so, this was a period where they were experimenting with things like family leave, requiring men to take family leave as well as women. And Ginsburg was right there in the throes of it, and it really informed her thinking about gender equality. She came back to the United States. She gets a job eventually at Rutgers Law School. She's the second woman hired at Rutgers. And then as she's teaching at Rutgers, she's asked by the women students to teach a course on women and the law. She's never studied this before. She really starts boning up on it. And all of those lessons from Sweden really come flooding back for her. And she begins thinking and incorporating those lessons into her thinking about these cases. She then joins the ACLU's Women's Rights Project while she continues to teach at Rutgers. And there she really begins this groundbreaking litigation strategy that she models after Thurgood Marshall's civil rights litigation strategy that led to Brown versus Board of Education. And she begins challenging these laws that are all over the United States that prevent women from doing certain things, ostensibly because um, preventing them from doing these things is for their protection. So for example, um, there's a law in Idaho that says if someone dies without a will, the state will appoint an executor. And that executor is by default going to be a man because men are better at math and more likely to be able to handle um, the difficulties of the administrative work of being an executor. She challenges that law in a case called Reed versus Reed. She writes this very extensive brief on behalf of the ACLU drawing on the legal theories of Polly Murray and Dorothy Kenyon. And in time, the court begins to see things her way. Um, Reed versus Reed is the first case to strike down a law on the ground that it violates the 14th Amendment by classifying on the basis of sex. Mm -hmm. And they talk about this need to begin dismantling these sex stereotypes that have really shackled women and in the process also kept men constrained by a particular role that posits them as breadwinners and earners as opposed to caregivers and participants in family life.
0: Oh, just utterly extraordinary, and um, you kind of mentioned um, her time at Harvard Law, and um, one of the um, kind of movies about her is um, On the Basis of Sex, and as a student, what struck me the most was just her first experience at Harvard Law School, walking into this huge room full full of men, and um, she just looks around and notices a couple of women, so um, now to see this you no know, more balanced proportion of men and women at law schools and universities around the country just shows the progress we've made in terms of um, women's equality, and that's uh, you know, in large part because of RBG and her legacy um, on the court.
2: That was not the scene from "On the Basis of Sex" that was most striking to me. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think I was traumatized by the depiction of Army Hammer and um, <laughs> City Jones having sex. Like, it was not how I wanted to think about her at all. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: I, you know, I wasn't planning on saying anything about this, but um, she. Graduated from Columbia only nine years before I did. And honestly, not much had changed. Um, my class was 5% female. It was a quota. It was 5% black, 5% female. And there were quotas for both. And much like her experience, we were told things like, what am I doing here when a man will die in Vietnam because I took his rightful place in the class? And I won't practice law anyway. So what am I doing here? And then in job interviews, and I will say the women in my class had limited opportunities, but we did get jobs as lawyers, not as receptionists or secretaries, and which was something that happened before that. But we would be asked questions like, what kind of birth control do you use? And there was no EEOC, there was no law. So those were legal questions that you either answered or you didn't get a job. And it was it, it was a horrible, horrible time. Um, years later, I was teaching at Columbia as an adjunct for trial practice and she was a full-time faculty member. So I did get to meet her. And I mean, she was an idol to me, uh, totally, you know, someone that you could look up to a real role model, not just because she was a woman breaking barriers, but because of how she used her legal knowledge. And, and Melissa, you mentioned this in terms of how she persuaded people and how she approached thinking about the law. And of course, one of her greatest accomplishments and contributions, you know, to the court is her focus on women's rights and equality for men and women. Um, Are there any cases that you think would best illustrate her impact on constitutional law and on interpretation? Because she had a different way of approaching how to analyze cases uh, that might be worth mentioning.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Jill. Um, And and I I fail to say she's the first woman to join the faculty of Columbia Law School and Mm get tenure there, which is an achievement in and of itself. As a litigator, one of the cases that I thought was um, most striking that she argued before the court was this case called Frontiero versus Richardson, in which Sharon Frontiero was a service woman in the Air Force, and she was married at the time, and she finds out by a chance that um, servicemen get an allowance for their wives and dependents, and she's like, well, I'm a service person, and I have a spouse I, too, should get an allowance, so she goes to um, the administrative office of the Air Force on the base where she is serving and they tell her that, yes, it is true that these benefits are available, but for her, she has to first establish that her husband is more than 50% dependent on her for his support. So there's a threshold for her that doesn't exist for the male service personnel and she sues and Ginsburg picks up this case um, She's really trying hard in this case to get the court to understand that gender like race is a kind of classification that really doesn't speak to any legitimate purpose besides sort of indiscriminate discrimination, right? So she wants them to understand race and gender as being the same. Um, the court's not quite ready to go there. They only She can only get four votes for strict scrutiny, which is the standard of review that is used for race. Um, and, and they sort of punt on the question. They will later decide in a case called Craig versus Boren that intermediate scrutiny is the right approach for gender. But um, this idea of sort of thinking about what it means to be a kind of gender-bending individual in the law, I think, is really characteristic of her thinking. So, you know, Sharon Frontiero is a woman doing something that most women don't do. She's really Mm -hmm. an exception to the rule. Another case that she litigated, um, Weisenfeld versus Weinberger, involved a widower whose wife had died in childbirth. And when he went to apply for Social Security survivor benefits, he was denied because he could not establish that he had been dependent on her during the course of their marriage. Of course, if it had been flipped and it was a widow, she wouldn't have had to prove anything. Her dependency was assumed by law. And so she challenged that and in trying to make that argument to the court, she was trying to explain to them that this was a husband who was not trying to put one over on the government. He really wanted to be at home raising his son and needed survivor's benefits in order to do that. And the male justices just that didn't register for them like the the sort of presumption was that men worked and if you had a child but you had no wife maybe you gave your child up for adoption or maybe you brought your mother-in-law or your mother in or you got a babysitter but you definitely didn't raise that child yourself and so you know that too was a kind of um, role that men were prescribed and Stephen Weisenfeld was like I actually want to raise my son and so that was what she was making room for yeah. These women like Sharon Frontier, who wanted to do things that perhaps other women were uninterested in, and someone like Steven Weisenfeld who wanted to do things that maybe other men at the time were not interested in. And so her idea was these sex stereotypes did not just disadvantage women by putting all of these legal impediments on them, it also disadvantaged men by shackling them into a role from which they couldn't get out. And you saw that when she then went to the court, her most famous gender equality case as a justice is her decision in United States versus Virginia. Um, At the time, Virginia Military Institute was all male. It was a state school, state military school, and it had a very illustrious um, line of alumni. They were a very thick network. If you wanted to be, In government in Virginia, it was a pretty good way. You either went to UVA or you could go to VMI. But if you were a woman, you were completely foreclosed from it. And so a number of women, this is at the time, just after the Citadel had become co-ed, applied to VMI and were denied, and they sued for admission. And the state of Virginia um, argued, and I I love this part, um, they argued that the reason why they had to have uh, separate male-only military academy was because sex single-sex education provided a diversity of options they're just sort of playing on the affirmative action use of diversity as a compelling government interest um, it didn't work at the fourth circuit they lost but the fourth circuit's remedy was not to co-educate BMI, but rather to create a parallel and separate school for women at mary baldwin college so this is the virginia Women's Leadership Institute um, that they established. And so the questions on on tap for the court was one, whether it violated the constitution for VMI to prohibit and exclude women. And two, if it was a violation of the constitution, was the remedy that Virginia proposed, this separate but equal lady military academy, was that okay? (laughs) And Ginsburg was absolutely unequivocal. I mean, she relied on her earlier thinking and said, Yes, it, it's probably true that not many women want the adversative education that VMI has on offer. But if just one woman wants it, the state has to make it available to her. And two, um, it's not a remedy to create a lady school. Like it doesn't have the same. And, and in this yeah. respect, I think she was really drawing on Justice Marshall's litigation. um His right. role in litigating Brown, where he said, you know, if you want separate but equal, it really has to be equal. And In this case, she said, Virginia Women's Institute for Leadership does not have the same alumni, doesn't have the same course offerings. Like, it's not the same as VMI. The only way to make this right is to admit women to VMI. And then I think one of the most most lovely things I've seen in her life is her going back to VMI 10 years after that decision to sort of see the transformation of that school because of her work.
1: I mean, separate can never really be equal, in my opinion. And certainly not in that case. Um, Years before that case, the Army was, uh, when I was general counsel, was integrating basic training and the military academies. And it was fascinating to watch how they were going about that and what the issues that got raised were. But that's a subject for a whole nother um, (laughs) issue.
2: This is a whole question, like, could women be citizen soldiers in the way
1: that men were? Yes. And and we now see, of course, that they can and that they do. Uh, I know during the Carter administration, we fought to say that the rules have to be the same. If you can carry a hundred pound pack, you can be a radio operator. If you can't, you can't. But that's true whether you're a man or a woman. You have to be able to do legitimately you know, duties that go with the job. You can't just say you have to carry a hundred pounds if you're going to be a typist that doesn't require it. So it's, it's been interesting and the military has done a very, very good job of getting the kind of integration and allowing the opportunities for women to serve the country. But um So unfortunately, whenever there's a resignation or a death on the Supreme Court, um, the discussion inevitably follows about the dynamics of the court changing. And it's not just the difference in how cases will be decided or what cases they will take, which depend on the opinions of individual justices, but it is a question of how they function together as a group. And I think that we have to look at, Justice Ginsburg is someone who really, her best friend was Justice Scalia, who was 180 degrees from her point of view in terms of jurisprudence. So her vacancy is gonna have a big impact on how dialogue happens within the court. Uh, She was very big on trying to persuade people to come along to her point of view. Um, What do you think the vacancy means to the future of the Roberts Court? in terms of both constitutional rights and liberties, but also in how they operate?
2: So, so I think there are a couple of layers to your question. So let me try and peel back some of them. You know, She was famously friendly with Justice Scalia. They were very tight, they mm-hmm. vacationed together, they had dinners together. Um, they had a very warm relationship. Um, she thought that his critique made her decisions better. I don't think she ever expected to win him over or to persuade him, certainly not on some of the more controversial cases, um, but she nonetheless thought that her opinions in opposition, whether they were dissents or majorities, were better for his engagement. And I, I think that's not going to change on the court. I mean, I think, you know, with Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, there's still going to be that kind of collegiality. Um, They may not always agree, but they will be collegial. Maybe not quite as collegial as Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg were, but um, they work in close quarters. They They have an experience, a professional experience, that very few other lawyers can even imagine or understand. So they're kind of all in it together, and they're not raised by wolves. Like, whoever is admitted to this very elite club will be warmly welcomed by... colleagues. Um, But I will say that um, for at least the last part of her tenure on the court, Justice Ginsburg was very much in the minority. And I think we saw a very different side of her where she really pulled no punches in her writings as part of that majority. The court really moved to the right during the last part of her time there. And she was often in dissent Um, And often in dissent and when writing opinions in which only she would be the signing author or there'd be one other justice. Um, So she was alone in some cases or with just only another justice on some of these. And that didn't matter. It really mattered to her that she got these ideas out and she was very forceful with them. Um, One of the ones that I recall most significantly is her dissent in the Lilly Ledbetter case. And this was a dissent that she wrote When she was the only woman on the court, so this was during that period between 2005, when Justice O'Connor retired, and 2009, when Justice Sotomayor joined the court. And you know, she came to NYU to talk about you know her life, and and she mentioned this period, and she said, "You could only have imagined what it was like for me, just being the only woman amidst these eight very well-fed men," which was <laughs> hilarious because <I see>. she was famously. But she was alone in this case about a gender pay gap. Like this woman, Lily Ledbetter, had found out very late in her career that she had been underpaid relative to her male counterparts for all of her career. And, and she'd only recently found out, and the question before the court was whether um, she had been, was time barred from filing her claim because it mm-hmm. took her so long to figure it out. And the court, the majority of the court in an opinion authored, I believe, by Justice Alito said that she was time barred. And Justice Ginsburg read her dissent from the bench, Um, and this was something that she did more infrequently and toward the end of her time on the court, but she read it from the bench and she read it in full. And she really called her colleagues on the carpet for not understanding what it was like for women to work in an almost predominantly male institution maybe like the Supreme Court, where it was hard to figure out if you were getting hosed on your pay because no one was going to tell you. People don't talk about what their salaries are. She's all alone in this predominantly male environment. Of course it took her a long time to figure out that she was getting underpaid. And at the end of that opinion, she really called to Congress the ball is in your court, you've got to fix this because this court is not fixing it. And Congress heard her and acted and the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the first law that Barack Obama signed into law as president in 2008.
1: My my husband who is one of the most wonderful men in the world and who is as big a feminist as I am was really unaware of this and when we went to see a movie called Made in Dagenham, which was about pay discrimination in England in a Ford plant. He said, I can't believe that that was going on so recently. And I said to him, what do you think the first piece of legislation that Barack Obama signed into law was? It was the Lilly Ledbetter Equal Pay Act. And he was shocked. So if he was unaware of it, I can only imagine how Few men and even women realize, um, and, and I think to your point, this business of being an outsider, which means you don't get the information. And uh, it's something that women of certainly my generation and older have often felt because we have been the first and only woman and we have been treated like outsiders. And we're lucky if we get a friend at work. Um, very, very interesting. But well, and she anyway.
2: recognized that it was, you know, doubly um, like women of color also experience this even today because mm-hmm. they too yes. continue to be outsiders in certain spaces. So I mean there were lots of ways in which she really spoke to one the importance of having women in deliberative bodies. I'm yes. thinking of this case, Safford Unified versus Reading, where the thirteen year old girl is strip searched yes. by her school and you know, the court finds the search to be unconstitutional, but the justice later said, you know, I just don't think my male colleagues understood how demeaning and humiliating that would have mm-hmm. been for a girl of 13 to be strip searched by the principal of her school or the vice principal of her school. So again, this idea that women need to be in these spaces because the experience of being a woman is different.
1: Exactly. And she was one who spoke up and out and Made that point so compellingly. Um, her passing is at a particularly um, difficult time, given that voting has already started for the next president, and um, the Republicans prevented President Obama during the last year of his uh, presidency from f- from filling a vacancy, and. Now they're saying, oh, but we can fill the vacancy. Uh, We don't care that we said before that a president in his last term can't fill it. This is different because we're a Republican Senate and we have a Republican president. Um, And so we're gonna go ahead. They did not wait even a few hours before they announced that they were gonna go ahead and nominate someone and that they would give it a full hearing that Merrick Garland never had. So the question really is, Um, you know, do you think that's hypocritical? Should they be allowed to go ahead and do that? Should Democrats ignore what they did in stealing the Merrick Garland appointment and let them go ahead with this? Is there anything that Democrats could do to stop it? Um, And and on a slightly different tack, who do you think is going to get helped or hurt by this? Do you think that the impact is going to be on Republicans because of the hypocrisy that they're showing um, or because they're going to appoint someone who does not represent the popular viewpoint on many issues. Um, You you mentioned when we were talking before going on air, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is the 180 degrees opposite of the Mm -hmm. viewpoint of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, she does not represent what the majority of Americans favor. So the question is, would therefore Republicans be hurt by that? Or would Democrats be hurt because Republicans are so um, motivated to go out and vote in order to get this seat? And, and should the Democrats, now that they can't avoid this being a major issue, how should they approach this issue?
2: There's 100 questions, Jill. I yes.
1: <laughs> Keep them all straight. But, you have a great mind, and I know you can cover them all.
2: Okay, let me, let me make sure I, I, I'm thinking of all of them. Let me first go back to 2016. Um, I think the Democrats missed an enormous opportunity with the Merrick Garland nomination to really just hold the Republicans to, to the fire on this question. Like It was President Obama's constitutional prerogative to name a successor. Yes, it may have been the case that It's the Senate's prerogative to provide advice and consent to the president, but you don't even get to advise and consent if you don't hold a hearing. And so there was that, you know, I, I do think that In 2016, most people were not expecting President Trump to win. They thought that Hillary Clinton would win. And for that reason, they didn't really push on this the way that they probably should have because they assumed that it would have been worked out because of the election, and it you know, would have been no moment of no moment anyway. Um, I also think that um, the choice of Merrick Garland was not a terrific choice. I mean, you know we had a ticket that not everybody was super jazzed about. Um, Merrick Garland did not really juice up that ticket and right. get people who were uninspired by Clinton Kane to the polls, whereas a different nominee might have and that might have made the difference in certain places a transformative appointment might have made the difference. So, so there's that. Um, do I think it is hypocritical? Um, it, it's of course it's hypocritical. Does it surprise me? No. I mean, you know, when this was happening in 2016, it was obvious then, I think, that the rules would change to suit Mitch McConnell and the Republican caucus if this ever arose again. And of course, it, know, it was yeah. Not unlikely that it would rise again at some point in time. I just didn't expect it to be exactly four years yeah. later. So it's not the hypocrisy that really troubles me, but um, what does what I do find troubling is the callousness, the speed with which they have rushed to fill this seat, the speed with which the president and his supporters have chanted, fill this seat. Is just. The callousness of it is just absolutely breathtaking. Um, you know, when Justice Scalia passed away, he passed away on February 16th, 2016. President Obama did not nominate Merrick Garland until March 16th, 2016. I mean, like there was a sort of generally accepted period of mourning, both for the family and for the country. And a moment to stop and appreciate whether you agreed with it or not. The legacy of this person and the trajectory and life of his or her work on the yeah. court, and it has barely been forty-eight hours, and we are already talking about who will sit in her seat. Um, you know, apparently there are already potential nominees at the White House being interviewed by the president. I mean, to me, that just feels like vultures. Like I mean, like like literally birds of. Yeah. Words of prey circling around, you know, the carrion corpse, um, it's, it's, it's awful and it, it just suggests how corroded and debased our discourse has become that this really mm-hmm. is a political struggle even over the legacy of someone as great as Justice Ginsburg.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's clearly political because if it wasn't, for example, um, one of the candidates is a Cuban-American and is clearly being used as a political tool to appeal to the Florida-Cuban vote. Um, and it, I don't I'm, I, do so, you so think that's, that's a legitimate.
2: I mean, the president can nominate whomever he likes, but I mean, to your point, who's going to win and who's going to lose here? I think for the president, the only person who needs to win is him. And it doesn't matter if this affects anyone else in his party. And, and to be really clear, I think there could be down Ballot effects for many of those Republicans who are in really deeply contested Senate races. So I'm making Susan uh, Collins, who, you know, is always sending thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <right now. laughs> um, I mean, this is not a good position for her to be in, um, and this would like for her to sort of come out unequivocally and say, "I will not support a nomination in advance of the election." I will not support a nomination in advance of the inauguration because the American people are making their voices heard at this moment. That's her Hail Mary pass. And of course, she's unlikely to do it, but that's her Hail Mary pass. She's in a losing race with Sarah Gideon right now. That would be the play, I would think, but I'm not sure that you're going to get it from her in part because they're all sort of in thrall to this, you know, constituency that Mitch McConnell has stitched together, but I think there are a lot of people like that. Cory Gardner in Colorado, I think is in that situation. Um, Maybe Tom Tillis in North Carolina, but a lot of them I think are going to bear the brunt of people just finding this whole episode really, really unseemly. Um, The president, I don't think, um, will do that. You know, as you say, there are two front runners. He's already said that he plans to name a woman. He will likely name her on Saturday, like exactly a day after Justice Ginsburg is laid to rest. So there will be a brief hour or two um, where there's no business conducted. Um, The front runners, again, are Amy Coney Barrett. And there's much discussion of Barbara Lagoa, who is a judge on the 11th Circuit, which is based in Atlanta. one of the things that i think is worth noting is that both of these women have already been vetted to some extent and that reflects the quick the quickness the expedition of this process because there are only 42 days left to until right. the election and in many jurisdictions people are actually voting so they are actually in a rush to get this done mm-hmm. if you go back to 2016 the best argument that mitch McConnell made in favor of not giving Merrick Garland a uh, hearing was that they wanted to have the people speak on this question, the sort of democratic legitimacy argument. And I didn't buy it then, there was a lot more time for the people to make themselves heard. But here I think the democratic legitimacy argument is actually amplified and more forceful because yeah. people are actually voting and many of them are voting with the Supreme Court in mind. Um, so. You know, the the quickness with which this is being done is really interesting, but it also, I think, is reflected in the two nominees because if you're going to move this quickly, you need someone who has been thoroughly vetted or at least partly vetted. Um, And the thoroughly vetted candidate is Amy Coney Barrett, who was shortlisted for the seat that Brett Kavanaugh now occupies. So she's from the Seventh Circuit in Indiana. She's a former law professor, as Justice Ginsburg was. Um, She was a law professor at Notre Dame before going to the Seventh Circuit, um, which is based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very different from Justice Ginsburg. Um, she's an ardent Catholic. Her faith is really important to her. She talks about that a lot. I think the fact that she is such, um, faith is so important to her, gives the Republicans another talking point about the way in their view that um, religion has been debased and religious faith has yeah. been debased in politics. and in the law. I -hmm. I don't necessarily agree that that is the case, but um, I think her treatment during her confirmation hearing a couple of years ago where she really took a lot of fire from Dianne Feinstein from California about her religious beliefs will further amplify that narrative around her that she is sort of a beleaguered believer. And um, this is again the left's assault on religion. I think she is a favorite of the Trump base, um, no, in part because um, she is a believer and she's been very clear about her skepticism and um, objections to abortion. So, I mean, as with any nomination and vacancy, I think Roe versus Wade always sort of looms in the mm-hmm. shadows and, and that's no mm-hmm. exception here. And one of the reasons why I think she is so popular with his base is because of that. She's expected to be a reliable vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Barbara Lagoa is kind of a wild card on that. Um, she hasn't had an abortion case while she's on the 11th Circuit, nor did she have one when she served on the Florida Supreme Court. What we know about her is that she is a protege of Ron DeSantis, the embattled governor of Florida. And um, she's a Cuban-American. And I think the president is, is finds her especially appealing in part because she has the potential to activate, certainly in Florida, the Latino vote that may turn a state that for him is a really important electoral prize and may have the possibility of also triggering Latino activism throughout the rest of the country. So, I mean, I think the real question is, is President Trump more beholden to his base who really want Amy Coney Barrett or is he really thinking about himself? Um, Because Barbara Lagoa might make more sense for himself. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And it'll also be interesting to see what happens on uh, just the Democratic response to this. Um, I want to highlight a Washington Post article that you wrote shortly after the Democratic Convention, um, in which you pointed out how the DNC convention didn't underscore the importance of the courts at all. Um, Joe and I noticed this because con- we kind of covered the convention as delegates. So um, they talked a lot about women's rights, immigrants' rights, climate change, but didn't really focus on how the court would impact these sort of issues um, if they decided on these cases. so. Um, you also noted that it was uh, mentioned multiple times at the Republican convention where the packing of the federal trial, appellate, and Supreme Court are seen as key factors to bringing Republican voters to turn out. So, um, do you think first, um, how big a mistake was this on behalf of the Democratic part? And then um, going forward with you know RBG now gone, um, do you think that this will change the dynamics of how how Republicans approach and how Democrats report, approach, um, how important the issue of the Supreme Court is.
2: So the conventionalism has always been that the GOP voter is more exercised by the prospect of courts, and, and not just mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, but the lower federal courts as well, mm-hmm. and Democratic voters just are not. And that, that's been kind of a template with the parties. The GOP really emphasizes and presses on the question of judges, and the Democrats really do not. I thought this convention was just such a missed opportunity because we really didn't talk about the courts at all. I mean, just like, mm-hmm. give me a little bit of something about the courts. Um, we heard all about the Violence Against Women Act and Joe Biden's role in passing that. We heard, it talked a little bit about the ACA. Nobody talked at all about how the Violence Against Women's Act's key civil rights provision was invalidated by the court in mm-hmm. 2000 in a five to four decision and how The ACA and the fate of the ACA and 23 million Americans who depend on the ACA for health insurance in the middle of a global pandemic is before the court in this very next term. And in the last go around when the ACA was before the court in 2012, it was Chief Justice Roberts who joined the liberals to uphold the individual mandate. Unclear what happens now that Justice Ginsburg is no longer on the court and you don't have a four person liberal bloc anymore. It's like, it's not just going to be the Chief Justice that upholds it. He has to bring someone else along too. Mm-hmm. Uh, no discussion of this at all. And, you know, I think Democratic voters are savvier. I mean, n- not savvier than Republicans, I mean, but just, just savvier than the party expects them to be. Like, we understand that the courts are important. And, you know, I understand that there's probably some worry that in emphasizing it too much, you just activate the Republicans as well but I think we had to talk about it a little bit or at least signal that we understood that these were important issues because we talked about policy incessantly, but our policies don't matter if they keep getting invalidated at the court. Yeah. And by the same token, you know, the, the Republican National Convention didn't really have any policy successes that they could really tout except stacking the courts with conservative judges. So they talked about that incessantly and they talked about the threat to the suburbs and you know the fact that Democrats just wanted to fund the police. And that was sort of the end of it.
1: Yeah, this was something that Victor and I in our analysis of the two conventions talked about. I was very unhappy that they hadn't mentioned the courts at all, whereas the Republican convention mentioned it quite a lot, um, multiple times. Interestingly, we asked uh, Steve Schmidt, who was a guest of ours, whether he thought that was a mistake. And he said, no, he thought it was a deliberate action that the Republicans uh, are using that as a motivating factor, but the Democrats who are trying to appeal to some more liberal, moderate Republicans and to independents who might really like the conservative justices that Donald Trump would appoint. They didn't want to raise the issue because they didn't wanna lose those over that issue. They wanted to make the arguments about the character of the president versus the character of Biden. They wanted to make the argument about the policies like the ACA and uh, preexisting conditions without mentioning that it could be taken away by the courts let alone you know not the, a, a democratic senate so um i'm not sure you know why that is but i still think that it is a motivating factor for democratic voters oh. to think about the rights that the supreme court protects as a routine part of their their job and that without them having Uh, a representative court, if it gets to be 6-3 extremists on the conservative side, it's going to be very hard to move forward with any legislation. And that's why I thought your article was so brilliant, because it really pointed to the uh, relationship between policy and reality. You can have policies, you can pass them into law, but if the courts undo it, then what have you accomplished? Nothing. So the courts then become very important.
2: Well, I, I, so uh, far be it from me to second guess Steve Schmidt about politics or or, or his background. He's a room raider. Ten out of. 10, <laughs> uh, so are you? Uh, but, but I don't have a pineapple like he does. Uh, uh, <laughs> he definitely knows what he's doing. But but I do think that you know Democrats can chew gum and walk at the same time. Like you you don't have to do it the way the Republicans do. But I think you can talk about the fact that. You know, under Mitch McConnell, there have been so many changes in the Senate rules, some of them initiated by Harry Reid, but many of them furthered by Mitch McConnell, you know, the ending of a supermajority for nominees to the Supreme Court, a supermajority vote, which means that you're actually able to get through candidates who are really more ideologically extreme than we have ever seen. So, yeah. you know, for that middle of the road voter, they like the idea, I think, of a John Paul Stevens yes. or a Wizard White. Um, they don't want ideologues, and if you have no, if you have just a simple majority and, and these rules that push these votes through, you're more likely to get extreme positions, which I think being against that sort of extreme composition of the judiciary is something that those middle-of-the-road moderate voters might actually be on board with. It's a harder message to signal though.
1: No, but it may be there are a number of laws I think that if there is a change in in the makeup of Congress need to be addressed Um, and one of them would be going back to some way of having a supermajority again Another would be the independent counsel law, which I think we've strayed very far from what the concept is to a point where the independent counsel is not at all independent. They're under the thumb of the attorney general who's appointed by the people who are being investigated. So, um, but that's, that's, you know, we have to get to that point where we can have that discussion.
0: Yeah um but you know being as notorious as rbg was um i suspect that this will be different we saw that afterwards with just the amount of people who went to the supreme court to um you know honor her and then we saw that with the donations just being shattered the number of people who donated to um democratic causes so um we can only hope that this is a positive indication for just democratic support for the supreme court and just for you know making this a hot button issue going into the election
2: so i think Certainly, um, at least initially, I think the president saw this as an opportunity to be able to pivot from what he's not doing on COVID as a referendum for this election to being able to do something that he's actually done quite well as president, which is to name and get judges seated. But the response to her passing, I think, has been so profound. I mean, I I really haven't seen anything like it, with the exception of when Princess Diana passed away. (laughs) The only thing I can think of that's comparable. Mm But I think so many women are going to be exercised by this. I think I've seen, you know, just on social media, women being really angry at her legacy, being so catacly dismissed and this rush to find a replacement. And, you know, this is a woman who, at a time when, at an age when most women are sort of getting ready to just be consigned to the dustbin where nobody looks at you, where you know, like, you're not likely to be the love interest anymore. She became a cult icon at the height of an age where most people are putting women out to pastor. And I think women really could resonate with that. Like, I think all of us who are not 18, you know, recognize that, you know, society may have a shelf life for us. And she defied that. And in this moment, minutes after her passing, to have her legacy so casually dismissed in this rush to name another to fulfill some sort of political mission, I think they find that distasteful and they're really angry.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so just to draw this discussion to an end, um, I want to draw on you being a law professor at NYU um, and teaching a lot of students who may go down the path of law, politics, or public service, because with now gone, I believe it's you know so crucial for the younger generation to come out and you know really pursue these different avenues, and whether that's law or politics or um, public service in general. But for anyone who is listening to this podcast, um, who may be interested or maybe on the fence about going to law school or exploring law as an eventual career path, um, as a law professor, present the case for why students should choose the legal route if they're um, a little bit torn about it right now.
2: So. I think students should really think seriously about whether or not they want to go to law school. I think it's not for everyone, it's a lot of money and it's not no. something that you should do um, half-heartedly. Like the whole idea, like you can do anything with a law degree. I think that's probably somewhat correct, but also, you know, it's hard to do anything with $200,000 worth of debt. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you have to weigh those things evenly. Um, if you do choose to go to law school, uh, especially if you're a woman or a student of color or someone who comes from a background where you know you don't have a lot of people in your family who have been lawyers, so that was certainly, I was all of those things. Um, I think law school can be really hard on the psyche. And I think you really have to fight every day to find your place there. And that was certainly the case for me. I mean, I think, you know, I, Law school was in many respects, um, not my favorite part of being a lawyer or, or being in the law. Like I love being a law professor. I did not love being a law student. So if you do decide to do it wholeheartedly and you're in it, understand that if you're not happy with it in the moment, that doesn't have to be the whole moment for you. Like there can be something after law school and you can have a really successful and fulfilling career even if you don't love law school. And you know, I try every day to be the law professor that I would have liked to have. I try to make the experience of law school better for my students than it was for me. But I know a lot of them struggle with it for a lot of different reasons. And I just try to remind them that this isn't your whole career. This is three years in a career that may span decades. And mm-hmm. the real question for you is to find the work that you love and to put yourself in a position to do that.
0: Well, that was yeah. amazing. Yeah.
1: Uh, very inspirational and honest answer. Um, yeah. Especially, I can remember back, I went to law school because I wanted to be a journalist and there was discrimination against journalists as women, women. I was offered jobs on the woman's page and I thought law school would get me taken seriously for a news job. And if you don't want to be a lawyer, the first year of law school is torture. It's not just, it's awful. I mean, it's just very hard. Um, And I ended up taking a year leave of absence to think about whether I would finish law school. Uh, Ultimately, I obviously decided that I, mostly because I just can't leave anything unfinished, that I had to go back and finish it. And it was only then in my second year when I got more involved in advocacy type things in uh, the national court competition in trial practice class that I found oh, you know, law is not so bad, but I'm one of those people who has used it to pursue a lot of different careers. And the critical thinking skills you get are really important and will help you in business, in whatever, whatever you teach. But I have the feeling that for sure your students are enjoying law school. I wish yeah. you had been my teacher.
2: <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you stuck with it, Jill. Like, can you imagine what we would have if, if Jill might have been- Very true. Shudder to think yeah. uh, but Thank, thank you, you so much so for much. having me this morning. Yeah,
0: thank you
1: so much. You're a terrific guest. We want you back again.
2: <sighs> I'd be delighted to come back. And, and so, I mean, thank you for making this space to celebrate Justice Ginsburg and- yeah to give her more space than we're seeing in the political yeah. cycle. Yeah,
1: we, we, we want everyone to realize the contribution she made, both as a woman, as a mm-hmm. lawyer, as a mother, as a wife. Uh, she was everything. She did it all. Um, not the she was she kind and was <laughs> charming. Yeah, she was terrific. So she changed the law so that all of us benefit. She set a path for all of us to follow, uh, men and women. And, you know, I'm just, I'm proud to be able to even talk about her. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on it. We appreciate it enormously. And I know that our audience is going to love this episode.
0: Oh, thanks for
2: having me. Um, And I love the whole idea of the intergenerational podcast. This is terrific. Thank you so much. We
0: hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics and speakers you would like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.